be used of God. They believe this because based on their concept of what a Christian must be before God can and will use them, they don't qualify. The reasons they feel that way are as diverse as the people themselves. Some people feel that way because of guilt over past failures and sins. Some feel that way because of physical limitations. Others feel disqualified because of lack of education. Some feel that they qualify because of the scars of their family history or personal background. Some simply feel inadequate or have a poor self-image. The list really could be limitless, but the point is that many Christians are paralyzed by the belief that they do not fit the mold. The truth is, though, that God is the author of and uses diversity. I read a little thing maybe that described uh, the situation in most churches. It says there was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Now somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. So it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Sound like a, any churches you know? The circumstances uh, of every age of the church have required leadership suited to those needs. We're looking at a very particular part of the history of Israel, the period of the judges. God uses 11 men and one woman, each different in personality and ministry. Nowhere is that difference perhaps more obvious than in the first three judges that we're going to be considering this evening. So this evening I want to examine perhaps what we might title three excuses for not serving God. First of all, <clears throat> I'm too old for God to use. Othniel was the aged deliverer. When Israel obeyed the Lord, he blessed them richly. When Israel stopped fighting evil, when they stopped following God, they soon found themselves caught up in the same evils as the society around them. Forgetting what God has done for us leads us to spiritual disaster in a very short time period. There is a cyclical or a circle of a downward progression in the nation of Israel. If you made a circle and you put it at the very top, what happens? It's rebellion. Rebellion. Israel does cite does evil in the sight of the Lord, which leads to retribution. That is, that God disciplines His children by giving them into the hands of their enemies, which leads them to repentance. The people at some point finally cry out to God, which leads to restoration. God 
brings them to a place that he raises up a leader and delivers his people. What follows that is rest for a period of time after that. Uh, They experience peace. But after they've been at peace for a while, rebellion. And the cycle starts all over again. In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 3, we see another downward progression. I think it would be good to mark in your Bibles, a result of which at least one writer termed the CIA, cohabitation, intermarriage, and apostasy. Verse number 5, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites. Verse number 6, they intermarried with the Canaanites. Verse number 7, they became the Canaanites. They served the Canaanite gods. Everything that Moses had warned them not to do, they did. And the result was the judgment of God. He delivered them into the hands of their enemies. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, God never allows his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them or it will invite the chastising hand of God. Now look at verse number 7. It says, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and Ashtaroths, and therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishamath, king of Mesopotamia. His tongue-twisting name really means Cushan of double wickedness. Kind of like Conan the Terrible. I think a part of it is to have an impact on those people who he faces. But because of Israel's sin, she was allowed to suffer under the reign of this man for eight long years. Yet, when Israel awakens spiritually enough to call out to God, he does answer them. I think it's significant to note that in spite of the fact that the situation that they're in was their own fault, when the people cry out to God, he hears and he answers. In verse 9 it says, And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Ben-Az, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. And his hand prevailed. So the land had rest for 40 years. Before we consider Othniel, I want us to stop to consider what it means when it says in verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It's important to realize that the spiritual empowering of an individual in the Old Testament is not the same as the act of the Holy Spirit indwelling a person in the New Testament. Before the coming of Christ, the Holy Spirit would empower chosen individuals for a particular task for a particular time. This individual would be empowered by the Holy Spirit with strength and courage beyond themselves in order to complete a task. 
This, however, did not imply any moral transformation of that individual. And I will talk more about that when we get to Samson. And you'll understand what I mean by that, that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but didn't necessarily mean there was any moral transformation in Samson. This was a temporary empowerment that could be taken away at any moment. Whereas the indwelling of a believer with the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of salvation and it lasts the remainder of their lives. What does one have to, to possess in order to be used of God? Some seem to think that you need to come from a good spiritual family. That certainly doesn't hurt. And certainly one of the things that Athnael had going for him was a strong family background. What a great thing it is to have a solid Christian family. The story is told of a young pastor who was dying of cancer, and as he was lying on his deathbed, his father and his uncle, both of whom were pastors, came to see him. They visited for a while, and then the young man asked his uncle, Would you mind if I talked to my dad alone? When the father came out after the visit, he said to his brother, I want to tell you what David did when we were alone. He called me over to his bed and said, Can I put my arm around you? I stooped over the best I could and let him hug me. Now, Dad, would you put your arms around me? I could hardly control my emotions, but I put my arms around him. And then with his arms around me, he said, Dad, I just want you to know that the greatest gift that God ever gave me outside of salvation itself was a gift of a mother and father who loved God and taught me to love him too. But a good, godly family background, although it can be a blessing, does not equip one necessarily to be a person blessed and used by God. We're first introduced to Othniel in Judges chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, when he offered to conquer Hebron, and he married Caleb's daughter. It is now some 30 years later. It's a time at which most men would be thinking about a nice, quiet place to retire. But Othniel saw a need, and he sought to meet that need. In that, Othniel was different from a lot of people. Some people seem to think that just spotting a need is a gift. Have you ever noticed that there seems to be more people who are gifted at spotting needs, though, than there are those who are willing to meet needs? Marshall Shelley, in his book entitled Good-Intentioned Dragons, wrote, Meeting a need is more important than spotting 50. And I'll grant you from a pastor's perspective that that is true. But Othniel, was a, he was a brave and valiant man, willing to accept hard and dangerous assignments, both as a young man and even as an older man. According to verse 11, Israel had peace for 40 years while he was judge of Israel. God called men and women to serve as judges, and they obeyed. They did their work, but ultimately, they passed from the scene. 
One would hope that their godly influence would make a lasting difference in the life of the nation, but that was not the case. No sooner had a judge passed from the scene than the people were back to their old ways, forsaking God, worshiping false gods. Second, I want you to look at, I don't have the abilities to be used by God. Ehud, the limited deliverer. Israel's sin led to another enemy taking control, Eglon, the king of Moab. He was allowed to overpower and occupy the nation of Israel for 18 years. Verse 15, it says, But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer from, for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Specific mention is made that Ehud was a left-handed man. Now the term in Hebrew literally means hindered in his right hand. Even today, something that is called wicked or evil is called sinister, the Latin word for left hand. But someone with skill and ability is called dexterous, which means right-handed. Left-handed people have been getting a hard time all through history. If you are left-handed, you only have to pick up a pair of scissors to discover that this world is set up for right-handed people. If you're left-handed, you may have been in some place in your life, in elementary school, forced to write with your right hand. I have heard left people, left-handed people say left-handed people are the only people in their right mind. In biblical times, it was far worse for a left-handed person. It was actually seen as a disability. You might be able to get you one of those little mirror hang-ons, disabled, left-handed. Today we don't take the discussion of being left-handed seriously as a disability, but the truth is that many of us are defeated by things in our lives that are not much more significant than being left-handed. An inspiring story is told about General William Booth. He was the founder of the Salvation Army. Later in life, General Booth lost his eyesight. His son was given the difficult task of telling his father that there would be no recovery. Do you mean that I am blind, the general asked? I fear that we must contemplate that, his son replied. The father continued, I shall never see your face again. No, probably not in this world. Bramwell said, General Booth, I have done what I could for God and for his people with my eyes. Now I shall do what I can for God without my eyes. An inspiring way to look at life. An even more modern story, most of you know Joni Erickson. As a young woman, she became a quadriplegic in a diving accident, and for years she struggled with the terrifying fact that she would never be able to walk or to use her arms. 
And then God worked in her life in a very beautiful way. He de- she began to develop her skill. And God began to use her to share her love with other people. And when she accepted what she was, the Lord began to use her as she was. Now let me repeat that last line again. When she accepted what she was, the Lord began to use her as she was. I think that could be true of all of us. Not only did God use Ehud despite his perceived disability, he used his disability, in fact, to get the victory. Ehud's whole story is about how a left-handed man uses his left-handedness to kill the enemy. Ehud took what some would suspect as a defect and turned it into a tool. Specifically, Ehud's left-handedness provided him with the opportunity to plan and execute the assassination of the hated king, Eglon. Verse 16 says, Now Eglon made himself a da- or Ehud made himself a dagger, and it was double-edged and a cubit in length, and it fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. <clears throat> What's a cubit, by the way? You know the cubit varies in length, right? Depends on how tall the person is, but a cubit is the length from right here to right here. If it's a short cubit, it's from right here to right here. What's the significance of having it on his right leg? If you're right-handed, your sword is on your left leg. And so when people came in to see the king and they searched the individual, they would search them on their left side. But he had his on his right side, and thus was able to bring it into the king's presence. He had several problems. One, he wanted to get to see the king, gain access to the king. This he did by becoming a part of a commission sent to the king to deliver the annual tribute. Verse 17 says, And so he brought the tribute to to Eglon, the king of Moab, and when he had finished presenting the tribute... He sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at Gilgal. The second problem was, okay, how am I going to gain an audience with the king? This he did by leaving behind the other emissaries from Israel and returning alone. As a lone man, he probably was not perceived as a threat, so he returned again to Moab where Ehud gained a private audience with Eglon by announcing to the king in verse 20, I have a message from God for you. Without going into all the gory details, and if you want the gory details, feel free to read the passage after you get home because there are gory details there. He then closed and locked the door to the room, the servant's Returned, they thought the king was using the restroom. They left for some time, and when they finally got the courage, they took a key to see what had happened to the king. He had taken the opportunity to drive his dagger into the stomach of the king. Apparently, he was so fat that the dagger went into his stomach and the handle could not be retrieved because the fat closed over the man's 
the handle of the sword. So he's a pretty good sized fellow. Interestingly enough, Iglon means rotund. So apparently he uh, lived up to his, to his name. Ehud's words to the king are also a double-edged dagger, a message not only from the idol god, which he no, lo- he no doubt expected, but a word from Elohim. Elohim, of course, is the Lord God Almighty. And the name of God, Elohim, is used in verse 20 to convey God's omnipotence and his sovereignty. It is God of Israel that is being described here. And so this handicapped man... Uh, proved to be God's leader to free Israel from domination by Moab. After assassinating Eglon, Ehud led Israel to a military victory over the forces of Moab, which brought 80 years of peace. Number three, you have to be a somebody for God to use you. Shamgar, the nobody deliverer. It says in verse 31, after him was Shamgar, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Now, Shamgar is a man with a very confusing family background. First of all, Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. It is a Canaanite name. So either he has Canaanite history or his family has so capitulated to the paganism around them that they have begun to name their children in the same fashion as their society. Oddly enough, it tells us his father's name, and his father's name is the name of the Canaanite god of sex and war. So we're not talking a real strong spiritual heritage here. It would seem that Shamgar's family background was just the opposite of Othniel's. Not only was his family background not encouraging, neither was his training. Shamgar was not a soldier. He was a farmer. And his only weapon was an ox goad. Shamgar reveals that we have to start where we are and with what we have. I always remember what God said to Moses. You remember Moses is listing off all the excuses why he could not be the deliverer of Israel. And God said to him in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 2, What do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? God expects us us to use the resources that he's given us. Of course, David had a sling. The widow in Elijah's day had a little meal and a little oil. The boy at the feeding of the 5,000 had five small loaves and two small fish. The closest thing that Shamgar came to having a weapon was an ox goad. And that is probably because the enemy has confiscated all the true weapons of the Israelites. 
Now, an ox goad was a strong pole about six or eight feet long. It had a sharp point on one end in which to stick the ox if he's not cooperating. And the other end, there was a spade for cleaning the dirt off of a plow. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to take on a whole host of people with an ox goad. But instead of complaining, he went about giving what he had to the Lord, and he was used. We find in the first three judges, individuals who virtually destroy our stereotype image of the person that God can use. Othniel was a man who refused to allow his age to stand in the way. Ehud refused to allow what other people conceived as a disability, stand in his way. And Shamgar, well, he had a stick. And he refused to allow his lack of better equipment to stand in his way. And I think there are three great principles that stand out for us in this passage. First of all, God uses completely different kinds of individuals in his service. I've been told several times over the course of the years, you don't look like a preacher. I don't really know how to take that. Does that mean you look like a thug? You look like a biker? You look, what, what do you look like? You get around enough people, you discover that God uses all different kinds. God works in a variety of ways through a variety of people. And while he does not deviate from his truth, neither does he always comply with our expectations. Secondly, God uses people who draw their strength from him. Truth is that God will use you or anyone if you'll let him. Don't think that your abilities are unusable by God because who made you the way you are? God did. He only made one of you. And he made you for a reason. And you need to look to him for your strength. And finally, God uses people who step out in faith and trust in him. Those are very, very simple principles that we need to remember when we think that God can't possibly use us any longer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for each one that's here tonight, their faithfulness. We ask, Lord, that if there is one here tonight that you're speaking to and they need to make some kind of decision, then, Lord, I pray that you'd be here in a very special way with him. Maybe there there are those who need to recognize tonight that you've not given up on them. They may have given up on themselves, but you haven't given up on them, that you still have a purpose for their life and that their lives can be used for you. Others may have become discouraged in their service and they feel like there's no use to go any further. Maybe what they have done has not been recognized or rewarded as they think it should have been. 
and they feel like they might as well just quit. Help us to be steadfast in our service for you, recognizing that this life is not over. There's much yet to be done. Father, if there's one here that has never accepted you as their personal Savior, we pray that even tonight you'd speak to their hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, please.